Today I want to talk to you about what we've been talking about for the last 13 weeks. Can you believe it's been 13 weeks that we've been talking about the gospel? Gospel is a word, for those of you that may not know, that simply means good news. And it's such good news that the word gospel has come to describe the first four books in our New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the books that that chronicle for us the story of Jesus and his life his ministry and his death and also his resurrection here on this earth. From that point forward, after the Gospels, we see the story of the church and how it grew from its humble beginnings and spread throughout the known world at that time until it became the church of today. And so we've been talking about good news now for almost 13 weeks. And and some have asked from time to time, you know, is the story of Jesus really great news? And I believe it is. I believe it's the best news because it it is a story that can have the, the possibility of bringing hope where there was once despair and hopelessness. It's news that can help us go from death into life everlasting. It's, it's news that can bring light into the darkness of people's lives. And so I think it's the very best news. God loved us so much that he enacted a plan to save us way back in the beginning when Adam and Eve fell so that we could once again have relationship with him. And he did that, of course, through Jesus sending his son. And so the good news of the gospel is news that travels well. Have you ever noticed that good news travels fast? Have you? Almost as fast as what? (laughs) Bad news. Yeah, good news. Let's make it travel faster than the bad news. But you know what? Wherever there is good news, there is also bad news. And in the story of Easter, in the story of Christ, and all that happened in the Passion Week, there is some bad news. And so today it's kind of a good news, bad news kind of sermon. And I want to start with some of the bad news, because the last week of Jesus' life, there was a lot of bad news. For instance, Jesus was arrested. Some of you know the story. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the the soldiers came, and Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus with a kiss. And so that's bad news. Anyone who is arrested that doesn't deserve it, that's certainly bad news. Um, The other bad news is that Jesus was tried unjustly. He was taken before a kangaroo court, both before the Sanhedrin and before the ruling authority in Pilate. And so that's bad news. Um, There's more bad news in that Jesus was beaten and punished for crimes that he did not commit. He hadn't done anything deserving the punishment that he got, but the Bible tells us that he was beaten over and over again and abused by those who held him. There's bad news in the sense that Jesus was taunted and laughed at by the crowd as he hung on the cross and even as he carried the cross up the hill of Golgotha. Terrible news, of of course, for the disciples and for Jesus. And then, of course, the worst news of all is that Jesus died. He died on a cross. And was buried in a tomb. Unfortunately, that's not the end of the bad news. It's not just the bad news about what happened to Jesus, but there's also some bad news that relates to how his followers responded to all of this. There's bad news in the sense that when Jesus was arrested, his disciples ran away and hid. Now, it is true that Peter drew his sword and tried to defend Jesus with a really bad aimed shot at some guy's ear. How many of you know that cutting off an ear is not a death stroke. Amen? That's not going to save anybody. And Jesus, of course, told Peter, put away your sword, and then he healed the man's ear right there on the spot. So I guess you could say Peter tried, but then from that moment forward, the disciples, including Peter, disappeared into the woods and were not present with Jesus. When Jesus was being tried in front of the Sanhedrin, Peter, the very man who tried to defend him, denied him not once, 
but three times. Denying not only that he didn't follow Jesus, but denying that he even knew Jesus. That's incredibly bad news. And how much that must have hurt the heart of Jesus. When Jesus was being crucified, his mother stood at the foot of the cross and wept with despair with some of the few disciples that were willing to come and show their faces at the place of his death. Certainly bad news for a mother who was losing her son in the worst possible way. You see, the real bad news here is that once Jesus died, his, defollow- his followers lost faith. His disciples lost faith in him. They lost their trust in him. They lost their belief in him. There were no believers at the cross. There couldn't be. Because Jesus' claims made that impossible. Because Jesus claimed to be what? He claimed to be the Messiah. I got news for you. Messiahs don't die. You get it? If you're going to come and claim to be the Messiah, the one who's going to set up the kingdom for Israel, the one who's going to make everything right that was ever wrong, the one who's going to put an eternal um, ruler on the throne of Israel in the line of David, you can't be the Messiah and pass away. It just doesn't work. And Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. Messiahs don't die. Jesus claimed that he was the resurrection and the life. How do you claim that you're the resurrection and the life and then die and get put in a tomb? I mean, they'd seen him resurrect Lazarus, but Jesus himself was dead. There was no one there to do the resurrecting any longer. Jesus claimed he was the resurrection and the life, but you can't be that and be sleeping in a tomb. Jesus claimed he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that he alone would provide a way to the Father. But how do you show the way if you're not present? How do you show the way to the Father if you're again buried in a tomb? How do you claim to be the truth when all of this was happening and no one can understand where the truth in that is? How do you be the life and be dead? You see, Jesus' claims caused them to lose their faith when he died. Because you couldn't be what Jesus claimed to be and die. Do you get it? There were no believers standing at the foot of the cross. They lost their hope. They lost their faith. And they certainly lost their courage in the midst of all of this. Surely this can't be the end of the story, right? The bad news is never the end. Some have said if it hasn't worked out, then it's just not over yet, right? And there is more to the story. And that more to the story is what we're going to read in John chapter 20, Verses 1 through 16. Let's hear the text, and then we'll walk our way through it, stopping along the way. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one who, the other disciple rather, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So let me just kind of paint the picture here for you. So Jesus dies on Friday, okay? It's quickly becoming Sabbath. And so um, Joseph of Arimathea, we're told, and another man, uh, Nicodemus, we studied him just a few short weeks ago, come to Pilate or come to the ruling authority and say, Jesus is still hanging on the cross. The Sabbath is coming. Can we take his body down? Can we prepare it for burial and go put it in a tomb? So So the moral of the story is this. Two men hurriedly prepared Jesus for burial and buried him in the tomb, causing this chain of events. The women of the group, the ones who knew them and knew Jesus, decided that if two men did it, it probably needed to be redone. Amen? 
I can see some of you ladies trying not to agree with me, but you know that it's true, right? Especially if they did it hurriedly. And so I'm here to tell you, there is nothing that I can do that my wife can't redo better. Am I right, men? Are you, am I right? I, I used to wash dishes for my wife when we were first married. I used to wash the dishes. I came home one day, caught her re-washing the dishes that I washed. That was the end of the washing dishes for me until she told me to several years later, and then I started again. But anyway, that's another story. So anyway, these, these ladies come to the tomb. This text just tells us about Mary Magdalene. Some of the other gospel accounts tell us that there were others with her, and she even uses the plural when she talks to the disciples. She says, we have found the tomb to be empty. They've taken Jesus away. And so you have Mary and these other ladies, they come to the tomb, they see that the stone is rolled away. Now probably on the way there, they were trying to figure out how in the world are we going to get the stone rolled away. But when they got there and saw that it was already done, that brought to them a sense of panic. And if if you look carefully there, their declaration to the other disciples tells us their frame of mind and what they were thinking at the time. They went to the tomb, they saw that it was empty, so they ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple. By the way, that other disciple is most likely the writer of this account, John, the one whom Jesus loved. He was Jesus' favorite, right? Every family has a favorite. It's unfortunate, but it's true. John was the one writing this story, and so he speaks of himself in the third person, the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And so she goes and she tells them, and listen to what she says, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb. Now, why did Mary not have any faith at all, right? I mean, if it had been you or I, we would have saw an empty tomb and went, he's risen, right? That would have been our first response. Why? Because we know the end of the story. She didn't. Her reaction to an empty tomb is one of the things that tells us that the disciples and Mary were not expecting a resurrection. They didn't expect Jesus to come out of the tomb. They thought it was over. They thought it was done. Their hearts were breaking not just because Jesus died, but because the dream died with him. You see, Jesus didn't come to teach a bunch of ethics and ideas that were going to outlive him and start a movement. That's not why he came. Jesus' teachings in and of themselves were not enough to carry the story forward. He was necessary to the equation. The man himself needed to be present but he was gone. You can't make the claims Jesus made and then die and expect people to still believe in you. And so when she came to the tomb, her first thought was, somebody stole his body and we don't know where they've put him. Let's read the rest of the story. Verse three, Peter and the other disciple, and again, remember, this is John, the writer of this text. Listen to what he says. Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter. Way to get that one in there, John. Make sure everybody knows Peter's slow and you're fast, right? Yeah, uh-huh. I would have wrote it that way. I used to be fast. Not anymore. Anyway, the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Why do you suppose he didn't go in? Because it's a tomb. Would you have gone in after all the zombie movies you've seen in your day? I don't think so. 
This is a tomb, a place where a dead person is supposed to be buried. The stone's rolled away and it appears empty. I'm not going in. I'm letting Peter go first, fast or not. And that's what he did. I keep losing my place. I should just read this. Um, He looked, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and immediately went inside because that's who Peter was. He just always went. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. He saw the the empty tomb. He saw the wrappings, all of the things that have just been described to us. Peter standing there in an empty tomb, and he believed. For until until then, he says, they still not... Wow, I can't read. They still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Okay, so here in this part of the story, we've got two disciples that are over the hump, right? We've got two disciples that now believe. They now understand. According to John's testimony about the story of him and Peter arriving at the tomb, they have now put two and two together and remembered the scriptures and the times that Jesus said things that would lead them to believe that even though he was going to have to die, he would rise again. So we have two disciples now over the hump. I've always been curious about what happens next because the very next verse says Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. Did they just ignore poor Mary as they left? We don't know. Maybe it was one of those situations where the two guys are like, Mary, come on, come with us. We're going to take care of you. And she's like, no, not until I find out where he is. We don't know. We don't know what happened, but poor Mary is left standing there. Now, again, this is not Mary, Jesus' mother. This is Mary Magdalene. A woman who probably loved him equally as his mother would have because he saved her from a life filled with horrible things. Her dedication to him was just amazing. And so she stood and she wept outside the tomb. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels. How do you suppose the two disciples missed the angels? The fact that they're male probably was the answer to that. I'm just kidding. Probably they weren't there. We don't know the whole story or how much time it even elapsed. But Mary got to see something a little bit different than they did as she looked inside. As she looked inside the tomb, she saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied. And I don't know where they have put him. Listen, Mary is still not believing the story. We don't know whether Peter and John shared their idea with her. We don't know whether they just took off and Mary showed up later. But Mary is still not even thinking about a resurrected Christ. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus. But she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you've put him and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. What a moment that must have been. He talked to her and she didn't recognize his voice. He's standing right in front of her, and she didn't see him for who he was. But there was something about the way he said her name 
that was familiar. Listen, I don't want to keep you long today. I know you've all got plans. But I do want you to walk down this this little road with me for a minute and, and think about the fact that Christianity, as it exists today, does not exist because of something Jesus taught because of some ideology that out-survived him. It doesn't exist because of the disciples and their belief, because after the cross, they didn't believe anymore. The world is not one-third Christian today, even because we have a Bible, because we have the written record of what God did throughout the Old Testament and with Jesus. Christianity does not exist. History was not split by Jesus' ideas, his teachings, by doctrine, by theology, by any of that. It was split by the man himself and the reality of the resurrected Christ. Christianity exists today because Jesus is risen. That's the long and short of it. Because without his resurrection, there would have been no belief. Mary was not looking for him to come back. Do you get that? In fact, even after uh, Peter and John came out believing, Mary still didn't know. And yet Jesus, when he spoke her name, suddenly convinced her that he was alive. And from there, as the story goes, Jesus appeared to more of the disciples, and as they saw him, they believed. And these 11 men and women who were with them changed the entire course of history. And if you read historical data, never should have happened. But it did happen because a woman discovered an empty tomb before anybody else. Listen. I believe that in some small way, God is speaking to each and every person who is and has ever lived. Whether you know Jesus or not, even if you're on the fence, even if you're here in church today because somebody invited you or because mama wouldn't feed you if you didn't come. I don't know what what your reasoning is. Maybe it was the coffee and the donuts. Maybe you just got invited by somebody and you were too embarrassed to say no. Maybe it's just what you do on Easter. I don't know. But if you're on the fence about believing in Jesus today, I want you to know that that your faith, if you choose to put your faith in him, does not rest in a book. It doesn't rest in doctrine. It doesn't rest in theology. It rests in a person, a real life person who is not dead. He rose from the dead and he didn't die after that. He went into heaven. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where he lives today and advocates for each and every one of us. And he has sent his spirit to live among us, to talk to us, to lead us, to guide us, to empower us to help us to get through hard times and to convict us of our sin. And I believe one thing that spirit also does is that spirit has a way of saying your name that nobody else does to help you to recognize the voice of God calling you because I believe God is calling everyone. Whether you know Jesus yet or not, I believe that if you listen, you will hear the voice of God. Now, again, this isn't me telling God what he can do. God does what he chooses. And God may not call everyone the same way. But I am convinced that if you listen for his voice with an open heart and an open mind, that you might just hear him say your name like he did with Mary. And listen, if you hear him say your name, there will be no sweeter sound than you, that you have ever heard. And it will be impossible for you to resist the Savior because he wants everything for you that you've ever desired. The peace, the hope, and the joy that can come only through a relationship with a person, not 
adherence to a religion, relationship with a person. It's all because of Jesus. He's at the center of everything. And if you have never given your life to Christ, this is Resurrection Sunday. We should all be celebrating the resurrection. And one of the ways I love to do that is by just replaying the prayer that we all pray to come to know him and to invite him into our hearts so that we can remember that day if we've forgotten. And so I'm going to ask you to do that with me. In fact, I'd love for you to bow your heads, close your eyes if you're comfortable doing that. And if you're comfortable doing this, if you know Jesus, just say this prayer with me out loud and, and just remember the day that you did this and let this be kind of a recommitment, a rededication, whatever you want to look at it. If you choose not to, that's fine as well. But if you don't know Jesus, but you can hear him in these quiet moments calling your name, if you feel a pull on your heart, a tug on your heart that maybe he's saying, now's the time. If you still have questions that need answered, I, I understand that. I'd love for you to come and talk to me. But if you're hearing that voice now, say these words with me. And, and if your heart means them, if you, if you believe them in your spirit, then the Bible tells us you will be saved and you will begin that relationship with Christ. So pray this with me if you would. Repeat after me out loud if you're comfortable doing so to yourself if you're not. Just pray these words. Dear God, I believe and I know that I'm a sinner. I have failed you. I believe that you sent Jesus because of my failure. I believe that he died. I believe that he rose again. I believe that he sits at the right hand of the Father. Forgive my sins. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Father, you have heard the prayers of these people as they've said these words, and to some they may have been just words, but to others they were heartfelt, meaningful prayer to the God that loves them. And I would just ask, Father, that if there's anyone that has prayed that prayer for the first time within hearing of my voice, whether it's on video later on or today or whatever, that you would allow them to tell somebody what they've done so they can be discipled, so that they can grow up in you and, and learn how to walk with you on a daily basis. And God, we will celebrate, each and every one of us, the life that you've given us in Christ through simple forgiveness of our sins and our failures and the ability that we now have to live a life that is full and rich and free because of what you've done for us through Jesus' death and resurrection. Father, I pray that you would help us for the rest of this week to never stop um, celebrating the resurrection for the rest of this month, for the rest of the year, to celebrate every single day what you've done for us and to rededicate our lives to you daily so that we might serve you. And we know that if we do that, you will give us a life that is like no other. You will make us alive in a way that we've never been before. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.